You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You remember last week we were uh, in Genesis chapter 42, we were talking about the different um, fears that the characters in that chapter exhibit, talking about the uh, fear that Joseph demonstrates that he's being motivated by the fear of God and he he gives encouragement to the brothers as he's being harsh with them, being um, somewhat difficult with them and, and putting expectations upon them and basically leaves it as, you've got to go back and get your, your other brother and then if you do that, I'll, 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 make, I'll make arrangements for you. And he gives them this token that they can hang their hat on basically that says, I fear God and you can trust that I'm going to do the right thing, that I'm going to interact with you in a just and an appropriate way because I fear God. And so it's... Um, it's a, it's a demonstration to his brothers that he's, he's living out his life. The actions that he takes uh, are all motivated by the fear that he has for God. Um, we see the fear that the brothers have as well, um, the fear of possible judgment coming. As they start to reflect in jail, he throws them in jail for a couple of days. They're not sure if they're going to get out of jail. They start to reflect upon why this is happening, and they have a conversation with each other that this is probably tied to the fact that we did our brother wrong that we were unjust to him, and this is coming back upon us. And so there's this fear of possible looming judgment that their sins are finally catching up with them, that their actions are, are finally being revealed, and, and now they're going to have to, um, they're gonna have to give an account for those things. And then we talked about the fear of Jacob and how it incapacitated him, that basically he was so fearful of losing Benjamin that it, uh, it just made life difficult upon him to want to do anything else. Um, that he just wanted to cling and hang on to Benjamin and um, was just very fearful of what could possibly happen to Benjamin. Um, and, and so we see a fear that was unhealthy for him. He, he lost sight of the fact that God works good. He lost sight of the truth that we've already looked at in Romans eight twenty eight that that God is working for uh, the good of his children, um, that, that bad things can be used for good purposes. And so um, we talked about that dangerous fear uh, that Jacob demonstrates last week as well. And the application that we saw is that um, if we properly fear God, that it really removes all other fears in our life. Um, and that was the sign of the early church in um, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, that the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord and, and submitted to the Holy Spirit, and they were adding to their numbers regularly um, as a result of that. And so we come to Genesis chapter 43. We've already stated this morning that um, they had basically resolved themselves to ignore the fact that Simeon had been left in jail and that the only way to get additional food is to bring Benjamin. They're hoping to basically uh, weather the storm and, and maybe even see that the famine will relinquish before they have to actually go back for food. But we're going to see how God is, is using these circumstances to, uh, to basically um, develop character in the lives of the brothers. Um, that was part of what we uh, saw this morning as we were looking at Romans 8.28, that God uses these things to develop endurance and character and perseverance, and that's certainly what seems to be happening in the lives of Joseph's brothers. So we're going to see some of the lessons that they've learned and how they demonstrate um, their um, comprehension of those lessons. All right, our summary sentence for today. While believers have a responsibility to do right, the blessings they ultimately receive from God are undeserved and should be received with thanksgiving in whatever form and degree they are given. While believers have a responsibility to do right, the blessings they ultimately receive from God are undeserved and should be received with thanksgiving in whatever form and degree 
they are given. And for our kids, God wants us to do right, but he blesses us far more than we deserve. The connection that I want us to see in this chapter is that while the brothers do a lot of right things and they respond appropriately, ultimately the grace and mercy and blessing that they experience in this chapter is completely undeserved. Um, If we remember the source of their grace and mercy, being their brother Joseph, who they've mistreated and abandoned, nothing that they do in this chapter atones for those mistakes, okay? Nothing that they do properly and right. Judah stepping up and saying, hey, uh, make me responsible for Benjamin. The money and the gifts that they bring to give to Joseph, nothing that they do in this chapter makes up for what they did in the past, now, it's good and it's right, and we're going to make note of the, of the things that they do right in this chapter, and we're going to see what we can learn and apply possibly in our own lives. But the connection that we're going to see at the end here is, is really the, the thing that I want you to, to really grasp this morning. And that's the fact that while we have a responsibility to do right, what we receive from God is ultimately completely undeserved. Um, and we need to receive it with thanksgiving in whatever form he chooses to give that blessing to us and to whatever degree he chooses to give that to us. Now, when it comes to spiritual blessings, we know that we have equal uh, claim and equal right to the spiritual blessings that Ephesians 1 highlights for us, right? Like God doesn't distribute spiritual blessings unevenly. But we do see things in life, circumstances in life, that can be a, a lot different than, than somebody else that we, we look to see how God's working in their life. Right? God, God can work and bless and move to different degrees and in different forms. And we're going to see that at the end of the chapter as, as Joseph brings all of his uh, brothers before him for dinner and he sits them by the birth order and then he bestows more food to Benjamin. Um, we're going to see the brothers' response to that treatment. Remember, they've, they've had a hard time all their life with their dad showing favoritism to one of the brothers. How do they respond now at the end of this chapter? Um, and what lessons can we learn from that as well? So we'll unpack this, um, this idea as we work through the text today, but ultimately seeing that there's some right things that the brothers do. Obviously, we're called to do right, but keeping in mind that God doesn't pay us back for the right that we do. He doesn't uh, bestow upon us things because we have rightfully earned or deserved those things, that it's still motivated by his grace and his mercy. All right, um, some introductory notes, uh, just to keep in mind as we get into this chapter. First of all, it's been about two years since they left Simeon back in Egypt. So the money that they brought down there to purchase grain was enough to sustain them for about two years. Um, And Simeon's been in jail the whole time, and they have no idea what his status is. It's about the same amount of time. You'll remember that Joseph had to wait to to get out of prison as well. Um, So about two years that he's been stuck in prison. Um, I referenced earlier, the family probably has no idea the length of this famine. Um, Joseph knows, right? Joseph interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, but we're not clued into the fact that this family has any idea that it's a seven-year famine. So I would venture to say that, that Jacob's at least hopeful that maybe this will, this will end before we have to go back and deal with this issue of taking Benjamin. Maybe we can just go back and get Simeon because we have our own food, we're able to take care of ourselves, and we don't have to send Benjamin uh, down there. Um, the test that Joseph administers in this chapter will determine how the brothers feel about Benjamin. Um, obviously, there's opportunity for the brothers to resent Benjamin when, when Jacob's showing so much favoritism about sending him with them, right? Like, I mean, the brothers can obviously see, look, if you don't do this, we're all going to die. That's kind of Judah's point. He says, 
Dad, if, if you don't do this, you're going to lose Benjamin either way. Um, you may lose him on the trip. We may lose him in Egypt. But the fact is, is if we don't go and try to get food, we're going to lose him right here, along with the rest of us. So I would imagine they're having to fight off some frustration, just the fact that, that Dad is putting Benjamin above the well-being of the whole family. Um, in addition, they're going to have to show favoritism to get him down there. Think about it. It's a, it's a several-week trip from where they were to going back to Egypt. And they know that Benjamin has to make it or all hope is lost. So as they sit down to eat at night and they're tired from the, from the long day's journey, Benjamin probably eats first. Benjamin probably gets water first because Benjamin has to be healthy to make the trip down to Egypt. I mean, they're having to show favoritism. They're having to protect him as, as their thieves and robbers may be on the road, especially in the midst of a famine. They're traveling with, with enough food to get them there over several weeks, and they're going to purchase, and so there may have been dangers on the road as well. Benjamin has to be protected, right? Like nothing can happen to Benjamin. One, for the sake of our dad, but two, for the sake of all of us. We know that the man in Egypt won't release anything to us if we don't bring Benjamin with us. And then ultimately, Joseph's gonna put him to the test at the end, and he says, let me show favoritism to him. You, you, you've seen dad do it. You've had to do it. Now let me bestow favoritism in a context where you don't think I even know him. And so now, for, for reasons that they wouldn't even imagine, why is he showing favoritism to Benjamin? Why does everybody like Benjamin more than us? And this is meant to be a test because Joseph is going to invite them to come live in Egypt where he's made a living for himself, right? Like God's blessed him and he's not about to invite enemies into that context. And so this is a series of tests to see if it's safe to invite his family down to Egypt with him. And then the last thing, we won't really get into it in the text, but I think it's just worth mentioning because it's kind of given as a side note at the end of the chapter when there's arrangements made for how they're going to eat. As we read through it this morning, you'll note that um, it says that they were, were separated as they ate the dinner, right? It says they served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians, so there's this segregation at the dinner. Joseph eats because he's the most important by himself. All the other Egyptians that are eating with them, they eat at separate tables, and then the, the Hebrews eat separately. And, and why is that important? Because we've been emphasizing through this journey, the Egyptians don't like Hebrews. And this is the safest place for Israel to be over the next 400 years because the Egyptians don't want to marry them. They don't want to include them. They put them in Goshen. They try to separate themselves from them. And that's so important because we've already seen Canaanite city after Canaanite city invite the Israelites to become a part of them. Hey, come in and marry us and let's buy and sell and trade and let's be one, let's be one people together. And, and that would have extinguished the nation that God wants for the Messiah. And so you can see even in the comments that Moses makes here, this is the best place for Israel to be because these people don't want to be even in the, at the same table with them, much less entering into marriage with them. And so um, it's another sign of God's protection and provision. Even though they beat them into slavery and persecute them, they're still not marrying them, right? They're still not swallowing them up like some of the other Canaanite cities were. And so ultimately that slavery is better than some of the positive treatment they could have endured because their nation would have gone away. Um, and so it's another sign of God's provision. All right, let's look at some of the lessons that we can see that Joseph's brothers are demonstrating um, in this chapter. First of all, believers have a responsibility to take care of other believers. And our notes for the outline are the same for our kids today, um, so they can fill in their notes as they're going along as well. But ultimately, believers have the responsibility to take care 
of other believers. And that's what we see at the beginning of chapter 43 is there's discussion about uh, the brothers returning to, um, returning to Egypt and, and Judah kind of steps up and takes the lead here. Uh, Reuben tried to do it in the previous chapter and that wasn't met with a whole lot of um, agreement. Simeon's in jail. He's the second oldest. The third oldest, Levi, is still probably tied to the disaster that ha- happened at Shechem with the massacre. And so Judah kind of steps up and begins to take a spiritual lead here and um, converses with his father and basically demonstrates some concern here on two different levels. First of all, Judah's concerned for the whole group, right? He says that we've got to go and buy food um, according to Jacob, but, but Judah says, look, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And he says, dad, we're happy to go if you'll send Benjamin with us. We'll go down and buy the food, but if you're not going to send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Jacob tries to blame them for even bringing up Benjamin. They say, look, we're just, we're just interacting with him and answering the questions that he asked. We had no idea we were going to have to drag Benjamin into this. Verse 8, Judah said to his Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah says, let's cut to the chase here. We've, we've got to come to a, an agreement. We've got to come to a compromise. If we don't do this, we're all going to die. So Judah demonstrates this concern for the whole group. I mean, he's thinking about everybody, not just one or two people and what's good for one or two people. He's thinking about the whole group and he says, we've got to do what's best for everybody involved. Got to do what's best for everybody involved, Dad. And, and while it's maybe not good for you because you're worried about Benjamin, and maybe it's not good for Benjamin because all of a sudden he's going to be put in harm's way, we've got to think about what's good for everybody, right? And so Judah shows concern for the whole group, uh, but he also shows concern for specific individuals, specifically Benjamin and his father, right? He doesn't just keep pressing the point and saying, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. He says, and on top of this, Dad, we've got to do it, but... Let me take personal responsibility for Benjamin in this. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety, verse 9. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So you see a lot of character exuding itself out of of Judah in this conversation. One, he's concerned about the whole family. He's taking personal responsibility for everybody here. He says, this is what we've got to do for the good of the group. He said, on top of that, I don't want to miss, uh, I don't want to um, negate individual needs here. And so he says, let me, let me speak to your heart, dad, and let me speak to Benjamin's heart, and let me say that I'm going to take personal responsibility for him. I'm not going to just uh, plow forward and say, we got to do this, let's go get food, and, and not personally take responsibility for Benjamin here. So he's concerned about the whole group, but he's also sensitive enough as a leader to say, I've got to consider individual needs in this as well. The implication for us from this and and what I want us to kind of see how this ties into our own life, a balance between what is good for the group and what is good for the individual is needed to ensure proper care for all. A balance between what is good for the group and what is good for the individual is needed to ensure proper care for all. And this is where we, we kind of see um, Judah's compromise and how it cares for all of them. One, he puts the group out there and says, we've got to do this for the good of the group, but we can't minimize the, the need of the individual here. And so we've got to protect and, and give added protection to Benjamin because he's so important to dad. 
He doesn't argue against it. He doesn't fight against it. He doesn't complain about it, right? He just, he takes the facts and says, okay, to make sure that everybody gets the care that they need, we're going to consider the group's needs and the individual's needs. And that, that's important for us in our life, um, especially if we're not in leadership in some way, to understand that leadership wants to uh, oftentimes work in this way and to trust that leadership is, is considering the needs of the group and the individual. An example, um, specifically right now within our church, we're trying to get people to Uganda to help Chris and Melissa and to encourage them. Um, I can tell you from the elder standpoint, we're trying to consider the needs of the group and individuals. We want to consider individual schedules and individual cost and, and um, the, the um, impact that'll have on a family's budget. And so as we began to construct trips, right, like we, we chose the trip in June for this year because for whatever reason, it's, it's half the cost of going any other week in the summer. Um, we want to consider the needs of the group and the individual, but as we continue to get into this, we find that uh, maybe we didn't consider Chris and Melissa's needs as much as we should have, and so we want to make sure that we don't send too many people at one time, right? Like, on our end of things, we're thinking you would want as many people to come as possible. Chris and Melissa may be on the other side saying, hey, the more people you send, the harder it is for us to find a place for them to sleep and to provide food for them, and so we're thinking, okay, maybe we need to spread people out a little bit more, Um but then also the elders feel such a great responsibility to make sure that there's enough people to continue to go over three and four and five years, however long they end up being there. Because for us, if we're not careful, it's really exciting to go right now. Like, right, everybody wants to go see them. We miss them. They've been gone for a couple of months now. But if everybody were to go the first year, there's a lot of people that are only going to be able to go one time, right? It's expensive to go to Uganda, especially if you're going as a couple you're looking at over $3,000 for plane tickets, plus you've got to get passports and shots, and then you've got to take care of expenses over there. We want to guard and make sure that Chris and Melissa, as individuals of our group, are taken care of for the next five years and not just for one year. Um, So that's an example of how even within this church, we're working through and trying to consider the needs of the group as well as the needs of the individual. And so we're going to continue to update you on where we're at with trip planning. And so we kind of paused it for a for a couple of weeks as we try to work with Chris and Melissa and figure out what's best for them, what's best for us, so that we can come together and make sure that everybody's cared for the way that they need to be. Um, That's what Judah exhibits here in this setting. He says, you know what? If we just focus on the individual, then we put too much value on Benjamin. We put too much value on what dad wants, and everybody dies, right? Like nobody goes and gets food. But if we put too much emphasis on what the group needs, Benjamin possibly doesn't make it down to Egypt. And so he's got concern. He says, I'll take personal responsibility for him. I'll make sure that he gets there. And so it's, it's worth mentioning for us that, that we, as, as a member of this church, um, it's important for us to think about what the group needs, but also what individuals need as well. I hope you can trust that as, as leadership here, both elders and deacons, we want to work for both. We want to work to make sure that the group is cared for while not... Um, missing individual needs as well. And I think Judah um, is a great reminder to us of that in the way that he handles his family. Number two, not only do we have a responsibility to take care of other believers, number two, we have a responsibility to trust God while planning carefully. We have a responsibility to trust God while planning carefully. 
Judah's speech works, and Jacob, or as he's called in this chapter, Israel, relents and says, you know what? Let's do this. In verse 11, it says, then their father said, uh, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. There's a lot of planning that takes place here. First of all, Jacob prepares gifts for Joseph. He says, let's make sure that when you go back, we do everything that we can to make sure you're received well. And some of the things that are listed here are the exact same things that the Ishmaelites were taken down there when they sold Joseph into slavery. So we know these things are important to the Egyptians. The Ishmaelites said, this is stuff we're going to go sell in Egypt. Jacob obviously knows it well enough and says, these are the items that we're going to include. These are things that they couldn't get in Egypt. And it's also valuable in the sense that it's a famine, and we're talking about a lot of food here that's going to be taken. Joseph, uh, or Jacob, prepares these gifts for Joseph. He wants his sons to have the best opportunity to be received. This is real similar to how he handled reconciliation with Esau, too. You'll remember that he began to send gifts ahead in hopes that those gifts would pacify anger and, and allow him to become more acceptable to Esau. In this context, he doesn't know this man in Egypt. He just knows that this man seems cautious and concerned and believes my family to be a danger. Let's do everything that we can to pacify his fear. Let's make it as, as um, attractive as possible for you to be received by him. Okay, so Jacob does this preparation, but then number two, he prays for God's favor. This is an important reminder to us that while we make plans to, to do and to accomplish things for God's purposes, we can't lose sight of how important it is to pray for God's favor and blessing upon those preparations. In verse 14, it says, May God Almighty, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Jacob prays for God's favor. Um, he asks for mercy. And what's cool is that he receives that mercy that he prays for. He asks for mercy, and then he receives that exact mercy that he prays for. In verse 14, it says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And then if you skip down to verse 30, you don't get this in the English language because the translation is, is different, but in the original language you would pick up on. Verse 30 being the exact same word as what Jacob prayed for. It says, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. This is, this is answered prayer right here. Don't lose sight of this. This is the exact same word. Jacob says, um, Let's pray to God before you go. And I want God to have favor upon you. I want, um, I want this man to have mercy upon you. And then we see a fulfillment of that prayer. We see an answer to that prayer as it says that, that, that mercy or compassion was warmed inside Joseph's heart. And this is, this, is, this is absolutely an answer to prayer. Even though we know on this side that Jacob was already, or Joseph had already forgiven his brothers and, and wanted to, to embrace his brothers and have his brothers back in his family, this is really an answer to prayer before it was ever prayed. Think about that for a second. 
right? Like God has been working on Joseph's heart ever since he was put into slavery. And he's been softening Joseph's heart or at least keeping his heart soft when he could have been very vengeful and angry all through prison time, right? Like he could have easily been plotting his, his, his plan to bring revenge upon his family, certainly when he gets put into power where he would have had the power to do so, right? When he's second in command in Egypt. And yet God has been keeping his heart soft so that he would be merciful when the family comes to get food. Jacob doesn't know that, right? Like he's not praying for something that he knows God's already been doing. But I think this is probably true for a lot of our prayers, that we pray and God has already been moving and God continues to move and continues to answer prayers before we even know what to pray, right? Like uh, in, in Romans 8, right? It says that we don't know what to pray oftentimes and the spirit intercedes for us. What we do know is that God works all things for good. Jacob's been, Jacob's been eating off this food that came back from Egypt and he's having no intentions of sending Benjamin down there. So for two years, he's not praying that the man in Egypt will be merciful to his family. His plan is to never see that man in Egypt again. And it's only after Judah's conversation that he says, okay, let's let him, let's, I'll let you go. But before you go, let's pray that mercy will be found in the eyes of this man. And we see God answer that prayer. Mercy is found. Joseph doesn't, doesn't um, in any way change his mind and want to seek revenge on his brothers. So we've got um, Jacob preparing, uh, Jacob praying. Um, what's interesting, I think, though, is that the brothers have a hard time claiming the prayer of their father. They approach, is, uh, they approach Egypt in fear. As this continues to play out, they're very fearful. And I think the reason that they're fearful is because of the guilt that continues to hang over them, right? That conversation they had in chapter 42, what's going to happen to us? God is doing this against us. This is God working against us for what we did to our brother. And so as they approach Egypt, what happens? They're invited to a dinner. Hey, like you're going to meet Joseph for dinner. Do they get excited about it? No, they're scared to death. They're like, oh, he only wants us to have us over to his house so he can jump on us in his house and sell us into slavery and put us back into prison and embarrass us. They can't even like, they can't even celebrate the prayer of their father and celebrate the answer as it's unfolding because they're so guilty of what happened to Joseph. Um, And we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll reflect on that again in a minute. But number three, Jacob trusts God with the outcome. Jacob's done everything that he can to prepare He's prayed for God's favor upon it, and now he has to leave the outcome to God. Back in that prayer, um, as he's praying over his brothers, or praying over his sons, he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. This title here is the same title that we reflected upon in more detail back in Genesis 17, 1, um, as God was interacting with Abraham and the covenant. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." This is before he's given him any kids, right? And so God reveals himself as the El Shaddai, the God Almighty. And, it, and it's really tied to the fact that um, it's a God who's able to make things happen. You'll remember that um, Jacob is introduced to this name 
in Genesis chapter 28 that we referenced. Uh, as Isaac gets ready to send Jacob off to go find a bride and to get away from his uh, angry brother Esau, it says in verse 3 of Genesis 28, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. That name that Jacob uses here describes God as a God who is able to make things happen. And then Jacob ultimately expresses contentment over whatever God chooses to do, right? He's, he's, he's asking for favor. He's praying to a God who he knows is capable of working favor in the heart of the man in Egypt. But ultimately, he says, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It's a mindset that I'm going to be content with whatever God does in this. And I think we see a reigniting of Jacob's faith here. I've done all I know to do. I've prepared my kids for this. I've prayed for God's favor upon them, but ultimately I'm surrendering them to him. Whatever their, whatever their outcome, whatever their destiny, I'm going to trust that it's good. I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing. The implication for us, we can avoid despair if we remember God is in control of the outcome of our work. We can avoid despair if we remember God is in control of the outcome of our work. Well, how's that playing out for, for me personally? So I, I shared with you how I, I see the first point in how we're trying to handle the situation with getting people to Uganda and how we want to care for the group and for the individual. Here in this context, um, as we continue to work towards the, uh, seeing the, the fulfillment of our five goals in five years for a church, um, there are things that are moving quickly and things that are moving more slowly than we would desire as, as individual human beings as elders. Um, but what we have to keep in mind and what protects me from despairing or growing discouraged is remembering that we make preparations and we pray to God for fulfillment of those preparations according to his will. And that ultimately there's some things that we have to leave in his hands, trusting that it's really up to God to fulfill the things that we're trying to do as a church, right? As you think about the, the goals, wanting to, to reach a capacity where we can send out and plant more churches, both uh, locally and globally. Chris, before he left, um, just continue. Anytime I talk to Chris, continues to talk to me about how important it is to see a church planted uh, in Uganda. And I have to keep coming back to Chris with the, hey, we can only do so much that ultimately we have to continue to pray that God will provide an individual who wants to go and see that work accomplished. Uh, that we can't plant other churches until God raises up pastors who want to, to do that. Um, that that's ultimately something that God has to do. And, and what's, what's, what's great in that it leaves it in God's hands is that we fully believe, and I think Scripture is very clear, that uh, for someone to be an elder or to be a pastor, it's something that God has to put on their heart. It's not something that we can go and recruit. right? We can't, we can't go and ask somebody to, to be this person to do this. This is something that God has to do, something that God has to work in somebody's heart. And so as, as elders, as a church, we do as much as we can. We make preparations. Uh, we do as much work as we possibly can, and we pray for God to work and to move and to act. But ultimately, we wait upon him. We wait upon him to see some of these goals fulfilled. We wait upon him to do that work. We wait upon him to, to use the gospel to convert people, to grow our church, or to bring people that are already believers to our church. 
Um, it doesn't minimize our, our efforts and our work and what we're supposed to do, but it does protect us and guard us from despair. And I think that's the mindset you see Jacob as he watches his sons leave and watches his beloved son Benjamin leave. He says, you know what? I've done all I can do. I've prayed and asked for God's favor, and now I'm entrusting the results to him. He says, I don't know if this is going to go good. You guys may go down there, and he may thumb his, thumb his nose at all the gifts, and he may hate you for, uh, for whatever reason, and he may kill all of you, and I may never see you again. He says, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. He says, I'm trusting in God Almighty who can do it. We'll just have to wait and see if he does do it. Number three, believers have a responsibility to avoid the appearance of wrongdoing. I think this is a, a great demonstration of the character of the brothers because this could have easily, um, could have easily been hidden. So as they go down to Egypt, and when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men, uh, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought them into Joseph's house, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. When we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. They're, they're so forthcoming with this, right? Like they they want to make it right, even though they've done absolutely nothing wrong. That's our two points under this one. The brothers are honest about the mistake, and the brothers desire to make restitution for the mistake. I say, look, we don't know how we ended back up with this money. We didn't do anything deceptive. We weren't trying to gain it back. But for reasons we don't understand, we have it, and we want to give it back to you. We want to do the right thing. We want to protect ourselves, but we want to make sure that you don't think we've done anything intentional against you. They're honest about the mistake, and they desire to make restitution for the mistake. They want to avoid all appearance of wrongdoing. The implication for us, even though you may not have done something wrong, you may still need to make it right. Even though you may have not done something wrong, you may still need to make it right. Let me give you an example of this in my life recently. Um, coaching football at Trinity. Earlier this year, uh, we were playing a team um, just nowhere near as good as us. And the score got lopsided real quick. Um, and I know on my end, I'm doing everything I can to keep that score respectable. I don't, I, I really, when I know we're playing a team that's not as good as us, and I know that there's no way we're losing this game and the whole goal is to make sure we don't win by too much, it is such a burden because you want to get as many people in, but you want your starters to play because they've worked hard that week. And, and as you see the score start to escalate and the, and the gap widen between their score, it's just such a burden. And, and this has happened a lot over the past several years with some of the smaller schools we played. So I'm doing everything I can on my end. It's, it's, like, it's our first game of the year. Um, and so we're trying to get some guys experienced that have not played that are going to have to play um, for, for a starting position the rest of the way. And, and the game just gets lopsided. And we score a cheap touchdown at the end that I, that I didn't want us to score. Um, and so it really blew the game wide open. And so I'm just feeling awful about it. I mean, we're shaking hands. And, and I can tell that 
um, the coaches are kind of eh about how the game is finished, and I'm talking to my coaches, and I'm telling them how, how bad I feel, and they're kind of playing it off, you know, hey, it's their job to stop us, like, don't worry about it, like, um, that's on them if they think that way. So we're putting all the stuff up, and, and I see their coach, and he hasn't left yet. And I'm just grieved over it. I'm like, I can't go home because I'm afraid that he thinks this was intentional. And so he sits down and he's eating a sandwich after the game. And I walk over and I sit down with him. And, and it's clear that I've made the right decision because he is angry, right? Like um, I would have I felt bad had I not gone over there realizing how angry he was at me. Um, and it was really cool to see as I start to explain to him. And I, and I come remorseful. I'm like, coach, I want you to know, like, I am so sorry how that game ended up. I had no intentions of the score being what it was, and I want you to know what, what our thought process was on our side. And it was cool to see how his heart started to soften as well, and he started to realize it would be pointless to remain angry because this guy's explaining what has happened. And then it was really cool to find out that he used to work with the youth at Mount Gilead, like back when Ryan was the youth pastor. And so we start talking and, and, uh, and, you know, we start just to talk about our ministry experiences at Mount Gilead. And, and it was just really cool to see how that conversation didn't have to happen, um, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me leave until it did happen. And in my mind, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong intentionally, but I felt such a burden to make it right because I really believed he may think that I've done something wrong here. And, and, and in actuality, he did think that. And by the end of it, we had a great conversation. Um, he left in good spirits. I left in good spirits. We continued to commune throughout the rest of the season, passing video back and forth as he finished out his season and I finished out mine. It's hard to admit and to take ownership when we've done something wrong. Like, that's hard enough. It's even harder to take ownership of something when you haven't done something wrong and you still feel like you've got to make it right. When you know that, hey, this isn't on me, I haven't really done anything, but to take ownership of it and say, you know what, I still want to make it right. And that's what we have the brothers doing in this situation. Hey, we didn't steal this money. We could easily just say, you know what, that's their mistake, right? We're just going to hang on to it, keep it. Y'all should have calculated your money better, but you didn't. So we're just going to benefit from it. They said, you know what, this could look like we've done something wrong. And so we want to make it right. And we want to make restitution and do whatever it takes to show ourselves to be honest men who had no intention of evil doing. And that's what the brothers let play out here. We're going to come back to the statement by the steward. But the steward tells him, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about. We've got your money, and your God blessed you. Um, we'll come back to that statement here um, in just a few minutes. But the last point, number four, believers have a responsibility to focus on what we have rather than what we don't have. Believers have a responsibility to focus on what we have rather than what we don't have. First thing we see here is the brothers experience an abundance of grace and mercy. They experience an abundance of grace and mercy. And I want us to keep in context the things that we've already read and the things that we're going to highlight here in just a second. Everything that Joseph is doing, he's doing without an apology from his brothers yet. Right? Like he's hopeful reconciliation is going to happen. He's hopeful that his brothers are going to pass this test. But he's He's, he's, uh, he's pouring out grace and mercy upon them, and he's yet to get an apology. And, and what, as I was studying and reflecting, like it reminds me of, of what the New Testament tells us, that it's while we are sinners that Christ comes and dies for us, right? It's in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, that Christ does so much good to win our hearts to him, right? God, God is working uh, through the gospel to save us 
before we ever confess anything, before we ever come to a realization of our sin, Christ is at work. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies on the cross for us. And it's while they are still sinners that Joseph is working good to bring about reconciliation as well. He, he's, he's, he's prefiguring Christ, I think, in some of his work here. Let's talk about some of the things that, that we see him doing. First of all, he plans a banquet and releases Simeon before they give anything to Joseph, right? Like he sees them coming and he says, we're gonna throw a welcome celebration for these guys. And he doesn't even know about the gifts that they're bringing, right? Like dad thinks we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to really kiss up to this man in Egypt to get any type of good treatment. All he sees is them coming and he says, throw, throw a banquet throw a dinner, right? Like it's similar to um, the prodigal son picture, right? Like dad sees him coming. He hasn't heard the, the confession. He hasn't heard where his son has been. He just says, get the party ready. My son is here, right? And he's running to his son and, and welcoming him back home. That's what we see Joseph doing. He says, I don't know why it took them two years. You know, like, I don't know why they didn't come back for Simeon earlier, but they've come and, and let's welcome them and get the party ready for them. He's showing grace and mercy simply by planning something before he's even heard from them or received any gifts from him. They're received as guests versus enemies, right? It says that um, once they make arrangements that the money isn't something they have to pay back, it says they brought Simeon out to him. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed their feet and given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. I mean, they've been treated like royalty. They've been treated as guests. They've been shown hospitality. They're not being treated as enemies. They're not being treated as, as men who threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery and, and wanted nothing to do with him and faked his death. They're being treated like guests. They're being treated like friends. Joseph showing mercy and grace to them. I mean, think about the banquet that he throws here. It's in the midst of a famine, right? Like this is different than you getting to go out to a nice restaurant for dinner after you had breakfast and lunch and, and were probably full at both meals and you've been full for, for years. Like they've, they've been in the midst of a famine and they've been rationing their food and, and all of a sudden it's free reign on dinner. I mean, this would have been extremely pleasurable for them. This is, this is Joseph going above and beyond because Egypt's in a famine too, right? He could have easily just given them what they needed. Hey, like you've been on a long journey, let me give you some food for today. But no, I mean, he throws a banquet. He throws a banquet and he's giving them the best food because food is coming from his table to theirs. Again, without a confession from them, without a, I'm sorry yet, he's working good for them. He's working good for them. And this would have been a most pleasurable experience for them due to the fact that they've been rationing their food for years, right? They're not eating seconds at home. They're barely eating first, and now they're sitting at a banquet table, and they're enjoying all that comes with that. This is, this is Joseph's grace and mercy. A couple more notes. Let me see if I can get them back up there real quick. So the brothers experience an abundance of grace and mercy. Number two point, if you're keeping notes, if we can't get them back up, the brothers rejoice rather than complain. Brothers rejoice rather than complain. So they have that dialogue with Joseph. They get separated for, for their meals. And as they begin to eat, it says in verse 33, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. 
So there's a special treatment given. And it says, and they drank and were merry with him. Benjamin receives more than the other brothers, but the brothers are content with the grace shown to them. And I think it, it has to be because they realize what they, what they really deserve here. That, yeah, Benjamin's got five times more than us, but we should be in jail right now. Right, like this has gone favorably for us. Dad prayed for it, and we've seen favor from this man of Egypt. And, and while Benjamin has more than us right now, we have far more than we deserve. And so rather than getting into a comparison argument about, about who should have what, and, and he's the youngest, and why does he get more, there's such a level of appreciation. They're able to be merry and to rejoice over, over what they are experiencing and what they're being given. Contentment is based on remembering what you really deserve in light of what you actually have. Contentment is based on remembering what you really deserve in light of what you actually have. Um, in my own life, I'll tell you how this is kind of working itself out. We are at Trinity right now. We're in the early stages of looking towards staffing needs for next year, and we're actually um, hiring a couple of important positions that um, may or may not be on the same level as where I met administration-wise. And so um, we're, we're, probably, we're looking at creating a possible position um, due to some of the needs that we have. And so we started exploring other schools in our area that are similar in size um, and trying to find out what type of compensation packages are being offered and what it's going to take to get certain individuals on our staff. And I was dumbfounded as, as we're doing this research as to the discrepancy in package between what some of us have at Trinity and what other comparable schools have in this area. Um, and, and honestly, like I've had to, I've had to uh, really seek contentment because in, 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 I know God has given me far more than I deserve at Trinity. In fact, one of the guys that I'm working with, he, he posed the question, we were kind of joking around like, hey, we need to apply at some of these schools based on what they're, what they're throwing around. And, you know, he was asking me, he's like, would you ever think about leaving or applying somewhere? And I said, no. I said, Trinity's been so good to me. I said, I didn't go to school for this. I don't have a degree in this area. And they've entrusted such leadership opportunities to me and such privileges to me. I said, I, I, I'm so grateful to Trinity. Um, but it's crazy to see some of the financial packages and some of the, the added benefits. Um, there, there's some schools that have um, truck leases for these positions where you get hired, you get this ginormous salary, and we give you a car, and you drive it until you want a new one, basically, kind of thing. And it's just been like, wow. Like, I don't know if we can get this person on staff because um, there's some crazy stuff being thrown around here. Uh, but it's been such a, such a reminder to me because I kind of stepped back and said, okay, like I'm trying to work out a financial package to bring individuals on and to hire teachers and other staff. And, and it's, it's given me opportunity to reflect again about how grateful I am for what God has done for me at Trinity and how he's blessed me beyond anything that I deserve and how he's worked circumstances to get me into the position that I'm in. So grateful and so content to where I can look at somebody and say, you know what, you might have five times more than me. Um, but I'm over here and I am merry and content because I realize what I actually deserve and what should be coming my way, especially from a spiritual standpoint, God has been far better to me than I could ever ask or think. Um, and so 
I love the brother's mentality here as they're at this table. It's almost as though they don't even recognize the fact that he's getting five times more. Whereas before they would have bickered and groaned and, 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 and complained, it says they kind of embrace Benjamin and they're celebrating with him and they're merry over what God has done. Um, I don't have an application for you today to wrap it all up, but I do have a final thought because I, I really think, um, going back to our summary sentence, that we have a responsibility to do right we have a responsibility to care for each other. We have a responsibility to, um, to plan and to work hard and to trust God. We have a responsibility to avoid any uh, perception of wrongdoing. We have a responsibility to be grateful and content. We have a responsibility to do right. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that what we get from God is not what we deserve. It's not that we do all these right things and then God responds and gives us what we deserve because of it. As we're seeing, Joseph's given them grace and mercy before he ever really knows how they're passing his tests. He sees them coming and says, get the banquet table ready. Um, And and what I wanted to draw our our attention on as we get ready to leave is back in Genesis 42, 21, there's that conviction that sets in for Joseph's brothers as they come to understand that um, discipline and judgment really should be coming their way because of their mistreatment of Joseph. And they're having this conversation. They say, you know what? We deserve this. We deserve what's coming. We deserve to be disciplined and judged. And then you have this steward who who drops a bombshell back on him and basically says, you know what? I didn't give you that money, and it's not our mistake. Your God gave that money back to you. Your God provided for you. Your God blessed you. Um, And I posted my thoughts on Facebook, and I'll just read them to you. It says, um, Genesis forty-two twenty-one reveals a conviction that is set in for Joseph's brothers as they come to understand that any discipline or judgment coming their way is rightfully deserved for their mistreatment of Joseph. But they're startled to learn in Genesis 43 that God is the source of their blessing. Their money has been returned to them. I'm reminded of how gospel-like this account is. When we come to understand our sin and the rightful judgment we deserve, the gospel rightfully jolts us into inexpressible joy when we realize that a God who should be judging us is instead ready to eternally bless us. I think that's where Joseph's brothers come to realize here is that the God who we thought was working against us and and bringing rightful judgment and discipline upon us is instead still working for our good, and and he's providing for us and, and working in us. And, and that's the picture of the gospel is that when we come to realize our sin and, and we realize the, the, the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve, the gospel comes in and, and it creates an inexpressible joy for us because what we realize is that the God who is angry at us and wrathful towards our sin is also the same God who's been working to save us from it, right? It's the same God that's been working to save us from that very wrath, and he's done that through Christ and and the work of Christ being perfect to save us and and all of that being done while we're yet sinners. And so we see Joseph prefiguring Christ in some of the ways that he's dealing with his brothers. And and so I don't want us to miss the gospel aspect here that while the brothers are doing a lot of good stuff and a lot of right things and they're making some appropriate changes, ultimately the grace and mercy they're experiencing both from Joseph and from God is what they don't deserve. They don't deserve this. They've, they've, they've acted contrary to how they're being treated. Um, and it's exactly how the gospel treats us, that, that we've acted contrary to God. We've been in rebellion towards him and God in his love and his mercy extends grace to us and allows us to be forgiven of sins and, and allows Christ's righteousness to stand in place of our sin and, and allows us to be eternally blessed and to escape 
that very wrath. And so I wanted to leave you with that picture because I think that that should shine forth from this chapter um, as that steward communicates some gospel truths to them that you expect your God to be working against you and to be punishing you, and yet what you find is that um, your God is continuing to work for you. Our um, family worship application questions, and, and some of this is birthed out of this chapter, but then also I thought Tyson raised some good um, thought-provoking questions this week. And so number one, what are some things that is... What are some things that God has done or given that I am most thankful for? Sorry for the typo there. What are some things that God has done or given within the family context for you that you can be most thankful for? And so leading your kids into discussion about things that we can reflect upon. And then number two, what are some things we can do this holiday season to maintain an attitude of thankfulness? I know one thing that we're doing at Trinity, we've got all of our kids grouped up into houses, um, and each house has... um, officers within their house, and they're responsible for picking a organization um, within this community that they will collect items for and give during the holiday season. And so um, we're going to be given to I-58, um, Bridging the Gap. There's several different ministries, and we're tasking our kids to kind of be responsible for it. We want them to, to go out and to purchase items and to bring in items and to take responsibility to give items away during this holiday season. And so um, there were some great responses on the city, and if you haven't had a chance to read through um, some of our families commenting on how they're handling um, contentment within their household during the holiday season, I would encourage you to do so. Great insight. Um, but then I would encourage our parents who have that insight, maybe it's just simply recommunicating some of those things to your kids. They're, you're doing some great things, but maybe just vocalizing that to your kids. This is why we do it like this in our house. Um, we've set it up this way to to fight against covetousness and greediness, and and this is this is how we do it in our family. So encourage you to use those two discussion um, questions this week um, as the Lord leads in family worship at home. Um, things that God has done or given to your family that you can be most thankful for, and then some things that can be done this holiday season to maintain um, an attitude of thankfulness as well. Let's pray together. God, we come to you right now, and uh, we just want to praise you and thank you for. Um, the truth that's contained in this this story. Um, God, we, we see you at work um, in every detail. Um, we know that ultimately you're pushing uh, Jacob's family to Egypt for their good, to be preserved and spared and so they can grow and thrive and ultimately so that you can send Jesus um, through this nation. When the fullness of time came and as we get um, ready to celebrate that season once again uh, with Christmas. Um, God, we look at this and, and we see Christmas implications here, that, that you were driving this family to Egypt through a famine. Um, and we're thankful for the assurance in Romans where we know that you use famines for good purposes, and we can certainly attest to that here. And God, we want to be individuals that are faithful to exude the character that you desire from your children. Um, God, we want to properly care for each other, take responsibility for each other, and, and we want to um, be individuals who, who plan and work according to the um, plans that you've given to us for building your kingdom. And God, we want to be individuals that work against any um, perception that wrong has been done. And so, God, I pray that you would continually convict us when, when we need to take responsibility for wrongful actions but even making us sensitive enough to see where somebody may perceive that we've done something, even if we haven't done it, and giving us that desire to make it right. Um, And God, we certainly want to be individuals that can be grateful and content with what you've blessed us with. Um, God, I know you've been so good to me and my family, and um, God, it makes it so easy for me to uh, 
resist comparing my situation to anybody else's because I know I deserve far less than what you've uh, given to us. And so, God, I'm grateful and thankful um, for how you've blessed me, and um, I'm thankful that it allows me to rejoice in, in how you may bless other people around me, even in a in a fuller extent than, than what I'm experiencing. God, we want to um, to see your goodness in light of what we really deserve. And um, God, we want to be able to be grateful um, no matter um, what degree or form you're blessing us. And um, God, I pray that would be true for all of us. God, I pray that um, the gospel would continue to encourage us and that, Father, it would be a message that we seek to take to others, that um, while you're a God who is rightfully angry towards sin, you're a God who has made um, plans possible for us to escape that anger. And so, God, I pray that we would take that message this week to people that we interact with. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.